I didn't know anything about the Irish gods before I visited in 2012. My wife was doing her anthropology research, and on a whim, we traveled to Drogheda by train from Dublin, where we stayed in a small village not far from Brunaborn, which is an Iron Age hill fort. I'm a lifelong Celtophile, but I had not spent a lot of time studying hill forts. Older than Stonehenge, I thought it would be interesting to see something similar, something as ancient, and so we went. I did not expect to come away with a curiosity about Irish mythology. I knew a little, sure, that the Irish word for fairies is the Aoshi, and that one of their greatest heroes is Cúchulainn, named after a dog. Why not? But that was about it. A few weeks after that, we decided to do research in the west of Ireland, north of Galway, in a small town called Kong. Now, if you're not familiar with Kong, it's where John Wayne escaped his troubled past as a boxer in the classic film The Quiet Man. While we drove, we came across a small village called The Nell, which had a strange marker by the side of the road. Burial site of Lou. Who was Lou, I wondered? So I began to do research in our downtime. I discovered that Lou was a member of the Tuatha Dé Danann, one of Ireland's previous generations, and was a god capable of walking across Ireland in a stride, with a great spear in hand and a long arm with which he wielded it. He was a master of every skill and vengeful. A few more weeks passed and we turned our focus on research in that time, but I finally sat down one day and started to study the story of Lou and the Tuatha Dé Danann a little bit more closely. I discovered that not far from the bed and breakfast that I still dream about to this day, there was a burial site belonging to a mythological high king slain by the Tuatha Dé Danann. One rainless day at sunset, we decided to find this place among the hills. It is an incredibly strange thing to stand upon the grave of an old god, but there I was, on a hill of stone overlooking the pastures and forests as the sun set on the western horizon. I can safely say it was the highlight of my trip, after proposing to my wife, that is. Ireland is dotted with sights like this. The gods there are part of the landscape. Beings you can visit, entities that are feared and renowned, their stories still told to this day. Yet who were these people? Where did they come from? What was their story in their own words? We can't be sure, but the stories that do survive speak of great heroes and fighters, goddesses able to repel invaders with a word, and the power of destiny to save us and to enslave us. This is the tale of the Tuatha Dé Danann, told from the perspective of Lu Lemfada. Welcome to Goddessy. Episode 1 masters of the four cities. The sky above him swirled, a mass of yellow-green lights that seemed to dance like oil let loose in a bowl of water. The colors mixed, adding complexity to the shimmering sight, distinct yet part of the same whirling mass brought to a center that never seemed to stay in the same place. Lou watched the night sky, bewildered, enchanted. His uncle called it Balak Nabofen, the way of the white cow, the Milky Way. He could see it, he supposed. It was not unlike cow's milk, poured like wet paint on a stone surface. Others, he knew, said it ran like the river Boyne, a reflection running to the sea in the sky. Yet it was his foster mother who called it Erbal na Ladakban, the white mare's tail, 
for the white horse who belonged to the sovereign queen of the land, appearing near year's end, that Samhain when the veil between the living and dead loosened. For loose part, he thought it was a chain, pulled by a great figure at sea. When Uncle Gavita asked him to explain, he simply could not, merely that it was. Lou had a way of saying things that bothered the adults in his life, yet he never understood why. Some said he had a gift, a sight given to him that let him see the truth in things. Others, like the sons of Yokid, said he was simply a good fabricator of fanciful tales, meant for children and dim-witted elders loose of tooth and senses. Neither made sense to him. He lay atop the standing stone, curved in its ancient repose. Little grass grew despite the spring air, and little wood grow for a blight was upon the land. Dim light shone from the feast hall of Yokid Megart, king of the Fearbold, for the feasting had ended and the king retired. Not his queen, though. Lou knew his foster mother spent many a late hour in communion with the land, whence came her charms and spells. She was a wise woman, and a terrifying one. One who had a habit of appearing from nothing, as if out of shadow. Lou sat up, startled. In a single instant, there had been nothing but the stars of the white Milky Way above him in the next, the loosened hair of his fierce foster mother, Tautu. She bore no candle, yet was illuminated in her turquoise gown, a crown of holly about her ears. Dark eyes and dark skin she wore, with her red strands of hair highlighted by the stars above. Why do you idle there, boy? If you've no dreams to dream, why not attend to your studies as I've told you? Her voice carried with it a cadence he could not describe, as if strung along by magic itself. Lou sat up, feeling suddenly warm in the cool night's air, pulling his cloak. He got down quickly, offering no reply. Your mind is in the heavens, there's no doubt there. What ails you? Somewhere in the distance, there was a hammering. The forges of the Fearbolg bellowed, and Lou knew his uncle, his foster father, was working away at his smithy. He did not like Lou's questions, thought the boy should put his mind to his craft, perfecting his skills. Questions did not get work done. His foster mother, however, did not agree. Where do we come from? Who built these stones? Tal Tu gave him a long glance, her face fixed like the stones of Tara, and then she smiled. What brought you to these questions? Your sons, my foster brothers, tell me I am but an invader. Yet you say your people did not build these stones. Someone had to. This land is old. Who made it? Who came before? And why am I an invader while they are not? She nodded to each question. Brave questions by a brave lad. Come, Lou, and I will show you what the land has shown me. She led him from the walled structure of the hill fort of Yokid, king of the Fearbold. Towards the hills beyond, snuggled between the two lakes, where ice-carved hills stood like pillars to the sky above. The night was clear, shining on their waters, and it was between them that Tautu brought Lu, where upon a stone circle a basin had been built, filled with fresh, clean water that came from the sky. Like the sky above it, it shone bright with stars, yet here it had a different quality, more blues, mixed with the greens and whites. He was barely a head taller than it, but left the circle and brought a stone to stand upon, holding onto the side of the basin. 
Do not let your dirty fingers touch the water, boy, or I will have you digging a new trough for the cows. Keep your eyes upon the water and do not let them stray. He looked at her, stern gaze fixed upon him and nodded, looking deeply into the pool that had not centered. At her side, she carried a twig of aspen, which she used as much as to beat her youthful sons as to command the world around her. She brought it into the pool, and there stirred it, once, twice, three times widdershins. The pool began to swirl, naturally slow at first, before deepening, bringing down the lights and replacing them with a fog, spreading like a cloud of melting water. Know this first, boy. This land has many names in the tongues of mortals and gods, given power by use, yet one alone holds power over itself and the land. Era. That is the true name of this emerald isle we call home, and it is that goddess I give my fealty, for this is Ida's land, Ireland. She is an old goddess, old as the sea and the stars, and many sorrows has she endured. Four corners has this island, and she rules them each, Ulster in the north, Munster in the south, to the west, Connick, in the east, Leinster, part of which met our land is set. Five generations have known Era's land thus far. What I tell you now is the tale of invasions, the taking of Era, which you shall call home for all your days. The pool stirred. An image appeared of three women, their eyes green as spring itself, with three men behind them. Who could tell that it was these three women who held power, a power he had felt before? He dare not look away, but he feared their gaze, fierce, determined, kind and hungry. The sons and daughters of many lands were they, and they had many names. Some say the first to come were led by Cesar, others by Banva, sister of Era, whose spirit still inhabits this land, for it was magic and wrath that brought them here. Of these six souls, all but one drowned in the terrible flood, and their spirits bound to the land as sovereigns. No king or queen may hold power in Era's land without the approval of her and her sisters, for they were gods as they arrived, and after their passing, remain gods. And in their passing, Ireland was vacant for three hundred years, until the coming of wise Partholon, who led the next invasion. Again the image changed. Now the land was green with worked fields, cows leading plows into the good earth. At the head of the field was a pale man, his hair like flax and his eyes a shimmering brown, sweating, proud, surrounded by smiling faces. They settled the land and made it their own, bringing with them plows and setting the land to work. Nine thousand was the number of Partholon's folk, for they prospered until the coming of the giants. The image changed again. From the sea came a series of boats, gnarly black things with dragon's head at their front, roaring forth. The men who stepped forth were dirty, their skin pale and ruddy, disease-ridden. At their head was a man with a limp, his teeth like daggers, holding a spear of bronze as he roared. From the Isles of the North came the Fomorians, those seafaring monsters, led by Sickle Grinsenchols, his foot withered by wickedness. It was at Magitha that the first Battle of Ireland was fought. And there Era saw Partholon cast down Sickle, driving the Fomorians to the sea. But a terrible price was paid. A plague came to the house of wise Partholon, and in a single week, 
the whole of his kin were dead. For thirty more years, the land stood uninhabited and unworked. The land became empty. The bodies of the dead leapt with crows flying in groups of three. Soon, the land was simply green, the fields open, the herds of cows now the rulers of their domain. The image faded again, swirling into dust. An image appeared of a man at the head of a ship, dark-skinned with bright blue eyes, his black hair and braids, whipped by the sea of storms. It was then that the sons of noble Nimid came, seeking this land in a fleet of forty-four ships. Only Nemids survived. It was Nimid's sons who built the first hill forts of this land, forts that still stand strong. Again the Fomorians came, and again they were pushed back, for Nemid's prowess in war is unmatched trained by Scythians. But the house of Nemed came to shambles. A plague allowed the Fomorians to make unjust demands of Nemed's folk, until at last they fought back. The image showed Nemed at the head of a great force, the bodies of monstrous Fomorians around them as their tower burned. Then a shadow came over them, taller than the sky. Nemed turned and beheld it, a great wave, ready to wipe them all out. Men scrambled to the nearest seaport, but only a handful made it. Nemed himself stood, spear in hand, against the way. The last of the Fomorian kings summoned the sea to his aid and brought forth a tidal wave, taller than the peaks of Karantuhil, down upon the land. Only but thirty of his descendants survived, fleeing to Albion in the east and further still. Yet Nemed himself lived too, and dwells here. Alone, he broods portents of war to come. You will know him, in time. Luson Island, blasted by waves, and there, in a black cave, sat a man, broken, weak, a raven at his shoulder, leaning on his spear. His black hair had turned white, his face haggard, the raven speaking to him. He faded, and the image returned to a swirling reflection of the stars above. Thus passed the first three generations of invaders. My folk, the Fearbold, are descendants of Nemed, who dwelled in the lands of the Greeks for a time. Prophecy foretold that we would return home with nothing but the bag on our back, and thus we traveled here, called the people of the Sacks, the Fearbold. Though my kin divided the land among themselves, there is no harmony between us. Thirty-seven years we have dwelled in Eden, Yet nine high kings have we gone through, each murdered by the next. Yokid is the ninth, whom I give counsel and my love, yet I know our dominion of this land will soon end. She placed her aspen wand in the water and twirled it, and an image, plain and clear, appeared. A land covered in hills and mountains and forests all green. Yet not all was verdant with life. At Ulster, where islands trickled northward to the sea and to Albion, Black scorch marks marred the coast. It was not to this that the queen pointed, and Lou followed her lead. Not long after our arrival came four ships, carried together from Lachlan. They were the masters of the four cities in the northern lands of the world. From Phalius, from Gryas, Findius, and Murius they came, led by the Dagda. They landed in western Conic, brought by prophecy and the power of the phantom queen, the terrible Morrigan. A red dot appeared on the western side of the island, opposite from where they were in Met, in Leinster, Lou thought. An image appeared of a large man at the head of a wide ship, poorly dressed, with a giant club 
strange etchings across it, a cauldron at his belt, which he tugged at to keep up. At his side were three women, each at once a maiden, at once a mother, and at once a crone, cycling, changing. Dressed in black and covered in gore that had long since turned black, emerald eyes looked out on the horizon, and then to Lou, their gaze turned black as they began to scream. The aspen wand slammed into their image, and they faded, Lou certain he could hear echoes in his ears. They called themselves the Tuatha Di Danan, the children of Danu. It was Danu who was the mother of Era and Banva and Fola, the sovereign mothers and queens of this land. By rights, the land is theirs. We have ceded Connick, but I know war will soon come to us. Lou swallowed, pieces falling into place for him. They are my people. I, lad, you are of the Tuatha Di Danan, it is true. Thus are the five generations, the first led by the sovereign queens, the next by Parthalon, and the next by Nemed, the fourth are the Firbolg, my people, and the fifth yours, the children of Danu. It is for that reason that my sons mistreat you, but know this, if you had fostered under my husband Yokid, you would truly suffer. But you foster with Gavita, master smith of the Tuatha Di Danan, and you foster with myself. No one but the Dagda knows more magic than I who dwells in this land. And that is why I teach you, boy. Gavita dwells here with us to ensure peace, and with him, you. But it will not last, and one day, you will go beyond the sea. Lou pondered those words, so certain. He had never felt safe here, at least now he knew why. Yet now he felt less safe than he had ever felt, as if this knowledge exposed upon him a great weakness. Despite the distraction, his mind lingered on the image below on the blocks that marked northern Ulster like ash. And what about the black spots? They are not natural. Aye, they are not, replied the queen, removing her wand, keeping it from the black. My people's infighting has allowed the Fomorians to finally take hold of some of the lands in Ulster, the remote areas where they build towers. They bring with them many lords, the worst among them Balor, of the evil eye, a giant whose gaze poisons and burns the land. Slowly they take more and more land each season, though my husband and the oral king, wise Nuada, fight together against them. There came a silence, filled by the chirping of crickets and the lapping of the lakes against the shore. Who will rule the island? he asked, and almost as if to answer him, the image changed. There stood a great army at the bottom of a hill. Among them were the Morrigan, the cloaked figure of Nemed beside them. The Dagda, too, wielding his club and a golden lyre trimmed with green. At the head of the army stood three figures, an old man dressed in gray and black, his left hand made entirely of silver and a crown upon his head. A fiery woman dressed in red, wielding a sword with tears in her eyes. And a man whose face Lou could not see, carrying a golden spear, a strange sword at his side, atop a horse whose hooves created fog around them, as if the horse itself were made of air. The army cried out and charged up the hill, where at the top a giant stood, his lone eye glowing from beneath many leather eye patches. The aspen wand dipped into the pool and the image faded, replaced by swirling minerals that came to rest. At last, he looked away. Why did you do that? I wanted to see! Her face was fierce, yet there was something else, a twinge of worry upon it. The lights from the pool faded, until it was black, reflecting the stars above. 
There are things you are not ready to know, lad. Yet you will play a part in all of this. The mastery of Ireland has long been prophesied, and whatever may happen, you still stand in the heart of it. That is why you are here. Many would see you dead if they knew you were here. If they knew who you truly were. Then she stepped down from the stone circle and turned, heading back to the walled village Yokid called home. What? Come back! I want to know more! He followed, his cries falling cold on the back of Queen Tautu. She did not speak to him as they returned, and left him in wordless silence. When they re-entered the city walls, fueled by anger, he followed her to the doors of Yokid's hall, shouting at her, demanding an answer. He received none, until at last, at the door, she turned and stopped him outside. It is not in my power to tell you what you want to know. Ask your kin. She took out her wand, and with it, the doors of Yokid's hall closed upon him, keeping him out. Though he beat upon the door, he was left only to the cool night air and his anger. Her suggestion came to him, that he ask his kin. There was but one soul he could ask. Heading down the steps of the great hall of Yokid, king of the Firbolg, Luf followed the sound of the smithy, heading to the heat. If she would not give him answers, then his uncle would. Goddessy is written and produced by me, Greg Wright. Additional writing, research, and editing by Sidney Yeager. Music provided by Scott Buckley. Episode 2 is back next week. See you then. <laughs>